Lord, help us today. Help us see our need for salvation. We live in a world of sin. We live in a violent and corrupt culture. People live their lives every day with hardly a thought of you, their creator and judge. Lord, if we are honest, we don't just see corruption around us. We see it in us. We rebel. We threaten and deceive. We forget you and your ways, and we stray from the right path. Lord, today, help us all see and appreciate our great need for salvation from sin. For those who are still lost today, may today be their day of salvation. In Christ's name, I pray these things. Amen. What does it mean to be saved? To be saved in a general sense means to be rescued or delivered, whether it's the drowning swimmer saved by a lifeguard or someone carried from a burning building by a fireman, salvation means to be spared from something bad. Well, what are some of the things that we can be saved from? Well, we could be saved from a bad car accident. We could be saved from an illness or injury if we recover. We could be saved from violence or misfortune. We could be saved from a natural disaster like a tornado, earthquake, or a flood. We could also be saved from punishment. Some condemned criminals are exonerated of their crimes. Some convicts try to escape from prison in an attempt to escape their punishment. But what about being saved from punishment that is deserved? Consider the confessed and proven murderer who receives a last-minute pardon before his execution. Well, according to the Bible, everyone needs to be saved. Everyone has fallen short of God's perfect standard and deserves to be punished. We all need to be saved. Do you agree with that? What do you think about salvation? Do you even think that you need to be saved? Maybe you think that you're, you're a fairly moral and honest person. You pay your taxes, you don't commit crimes, you don't abuse your family. Maybe you don't feel much need for salvation or for forgiveness. If you do feel like you need to be saved, maybe you feel like you just need to be saved from your circumstances, from misfortunes, from disappointments, from bad habits or a difficult marriage, parenting struggles, relationship problems, job stresses, or other felt needs. But what if none of these things are really your greatest need? What if your greatest need is for forgiveness, to be saved from punishment you deserve? What do we need to be saved from? Or rather, who do we need to be saved from? What if our biggest need is to be saved from God Himself. What does it mean to be saved, and what does salvation look like? Those are the issues that we're going to address today as we continue our series through Genesis, the first book in the Bible. And I would encourage you to turn uh, in your Bibles to the sixth chapter of Genesis so you can follow along as I read uh, passages aloud. We have a lot of ground to cover, and you'll be helped by following along. So please turn to Genesis chapter 6. 
If you were here for our earlier sermons in this series, you'll remember that Genesis is full of beginnings and origins and contains foundational truth for the rest of the Bible and for the Christian faith. And one of the themes we see throughout the book is God's undeserved kindness to the undeserving. And that's why we're we're calling this sermon series Foundations of Grace. In our first look at Genesis, we examined the structure of the book. It's made up of two halves. The first half provides a high-altitude overview of human history, leading up to the second half, which gives a more intimate focus on a particular family, the family of, of promise, a family that receives grace and promises from God. We also learned that Genesis contains an introduction plus 10 sections. In the original Hebrew, these sections are called toledots, which can be translated as accounts, histories, records, or uh, as our ESV uh, Bibles translate it, generations. Some of these sections are longer than others, and each provides a narrative or a genealogy or both that springs forth from the person or object named in the heading of each section. Today, we examine the Toledot of Noah, the section about Noah. The story of Noah is a powerful picture of salvation. It helps us see what salvation looks like. Today, we answer the question, what does salvation look like? Since we as humans struggle so much to have an accurate view of salvation, both what it is and what we need to be saved from, this is a crucial question, probably the greatest question. Our story today, the story of Noah and the flood, is like an epic wall-filling painting full of many brushstrokes. It's a picture painted with words. The style of these words is epic, full of repetition for emphasis, book-ended sections, and building anticipation. Today, we will look at six brushstrokes of this epic painting, this picture of what salvation looks like. We will see the setting, the sentence, the warning, the rescue, the promise, and the struggle. Let's paint a picture of salvation from the account of Noah and the great flood found in Genesis 6 through 9. In the process, we'll discover what salvation looks like. The first brushstroke gives us the context for this picture of salvation. Let's look at, number one, the setting. The setting. Let's begin reading the account that begins with Noah, starting in chapter 6, verse 9. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God, and Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. This mini-genealogy connects the previous family trees that we've studied so far with the ones that will follow. Noah has three sons, and Noah's character is described as righteous and blameless, and it says that he walked with God. Blameless is the same word used for a pure and unblemished sacrifice. And righteous means that he held himself to a right moral standard. This does not mean that Noah was perfect or sinless. As we will see later in the story of Noah, Noah is far from sinless. No, these words describe the blameless and righteous pattern of his life, especially in contrast to the wicked generation around him. 
This was the pattern of his life because he had a relationship with God, which is what it means to walk with God. Like Enoch, he knew God so well, he knew what God hated and avoided it. These are important points to make because there can be a great temptation to treat Noah as just another moral example. But why was Noah so righteous? Well, look at the previous verse. Genesis 6, 8 says, But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. This is another way of saying that Noah received grace from God. Grace, as you'll recall, is the undeserved favor or kindness of God to the undeserving. It's important for us to know from the beginning that Noah was righteous because of God's grace, not the other way around. Noah's righteous actions did not lead to God's grace. The grace of God led to righteousness. Well, that was the setting. The next brushstroke is the sentence. Number two, the sentence. God saw and evaluated all mankind and pronounced a sentence, a verdict of guilty and a sentence of death. Let's continue reading in verse 11. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. In many ways, this is a summary repetition of the the sentence God had already pronounced in our previous passage, in chapter 6, verses 5 through 8. There it says, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that He had made man on the earth, and it grieved Him to His heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heaven, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Notice the repetition of saw and sight. It harkens back to the creation account where ten times God saw that everything He made was good. In the account of Noah, God sees ten times how His good creation had been corrupted by the effects of human disobedience, by the effects of human sin. Here we have God, the all-knowing, all-seeing, righteous judge of the universe, weighing all human beings in His perfect scales of justice and finding them wanting. Generally, mankind was corrupt. Specifically, mankind at that time was characterized by violence. This was probably both physically violent crime and also injustice and oppression through the threat of violence. John Calvin believed that these people were so self-centered and vicious that they were behaving like animals. Interestingly, the New Testament emphasizes the spiritual complacency of that time. Christ, in both Matthew and Luke's Gospels, says, quote, In those days, before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage. People carried on normal lives, living for the things that they could enjoy in this life, living lives independently of God, their Creator. Proverbs says that the plowing of the wicked is sin. Not that plowing is inherently sinful, but that living a life independently of God is a sin against our Creator. Unlike other ancient flood accounts from pagan cultures where the multitude of gods sends a flood out of mere annoyance with humanity, 
Here we see a righteous God accurately evaluating the violence, oppression, rebelliousness, and corruption of mankind and pronouncing a just sentence. So, the judge has given his verdict, and now he gives a warning to the recipient of his favor, of his grace, to Noah. Next, we see the warning. Number three, the warning. God reveals to Noah what he is about to do. God takes Noah into his confidences and tells him of the judgment to come. Let's continue reading, beginning in verse 13. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you are to make it. The length of the ark, 300 cubits, its breadth, 50 cubits, and its height, 30 cubits. Make a roof for the ark and finish it to a cubit above and set the door of the ark in its side. Make it with lower, second, and third decks. For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh, in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die, but I will establish my covenant with you. And you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. And of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female, of the birds according to their kinds, and of the animals according to their kinds, of every creeping thing on the ground according to its kind. Two of every sort shall come to you to keep them alive." And take with you every sort of food that is eaten, and store it up. It shall, be, it shall serve as food for you and for them. Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. God tells Noah of the sentence that he has passed on humanity, and he gives him detailed instructions for saving himself, his family, and all land animals from judgment to come. God warns of a catastrophic flood and commands Noah basically to build a huge barge, a giant life raft. The Hebrew word for ark is actually the same word used for the basket that Moses was placed in as an infant. That basket, as you might recall, was also covered within and without with pitch. If you consider the parting of the Red Sea, you'll see that the author of salvation frequently repeats the theme of rescuing his people through water. Notice the repetition in this passage, which is in keeping with the epic narrative style. Repetition is used for emphasis and for dramatic effect. Here, the repetition of all and every highlights the conclusiveness of the judgment and thus the exclusive nature of the rescue, the special privilege of those saved. The references to all life and everything with breath alludes to the creation account, only here, God will uncreate His now corrupted creation. What we have here is a dire warning of judgment to come. In Hebrews 11.7, we read that Noah was warned by God concerning events as yet unseen. And that is exactly what we find in this narrative, a warning. Hebrews goes on to make clear that Noah was an example of saving faith or the righteousness that comes by faith. And Hebrews 11.1 defines faith as the assurance of things hoped for, the convictions, the conviction of things not seen. Because Noah believed God, he acted in faith. 
even though he could not yet see the coming judgment. The repeated references to Noah's obedience in this passage shows that he obeyed fully and completely. Noah obeyed because he had faith. Noah was saved because he had faith, and Noah had faith because he had received the grace of God, and his saving faith led him to obey. Noah was given a warning of judgment to come, just as we all have been given a warning of the impending judgment of God. The Bible gives us repeated warnings of a future judgment and an eternal destiny in either heaven or in hell. Even creation itself, as Paul says in Romans 1, is enough of a warning of God's power and His holiness that all are without excuse. So God gave Noah a warning of judgment and how to be saved from it. Next we see the rescue. Number four, the rescue. Let's read this story of deliverance, beginning in chapter 7, verse 1. Then the Lord said to Noah, Go into the ark, you and all your household, for I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. Take with you seven pairs of all clean animals, the male and his mate, and a pair of the animals that are not clean, the male and his mate, and seven pairs of the birds of the heavens also, male and female, to keep their offspring alive on the face of the earth. For in seven days I will send rain on the earth forty days and forty nights." And every living thing that I have made, I will blot out from the face of the ground. And Noah did all that the Lord had commanded him. God commands Noah and his family to enter the ark and take with him either seven clean animals or seven pairs of clean animals. Even before the giving of the law to Moses, there was a general awareness of ceremonially clean and unclean animals, particularly for the purposes of offering sacrifices that were pleasing to a holy God. Notice the detailed chronological references that begin here. It can be a little confusing to keep the timeline straight with all the artful repetition and the epic style. That is why a trusty study Bible can be so helpful. So using both the ESV and the NIV study Bibles, I constructed this chart that should help us keep our bearings as we journey through this narrative. So on the far left, you see the total time in the ark, 370 days, divided into two 150-day periods and one 70-day period. Next to that is the relevant scripture reference. Then there is a summary of each major event. And finally, we have the chronology in the form of the day, month, and year of Noah's life. So the number 600 refers to Noah's age and not to an actual date on the calendar. So the bold-faced dates are found in Scripture, and then the dates in parentheses are logical inferences from those dates. So, for example, in the passage we just read, God gave a warning that in seven days, a 40-day period of rain would begin that would produce a flood. Then, on the 17th day of the second month of Noah's 600th year, the flood waters came. The repetition of Noah's obedience in this passage, again, shows that he obeyed fully. And again, Noah obeyed God because he had faith in God. Let's pick up where we left off in verse 6 of chapter 7. Noah was 600 years old when the flood waters came upon the earth. And Noah and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him went into the ark to escape the waters of the flood of clean animals and of animals that are not clean, and of birds and of everything that creeps on the ground, two and two, male and female, went into the ark with Noah, as God had commanded Noah. And after seven days, 
the waters of the flood came upon the earth. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on that day all the fountains of the great deep burst forth, and the windows of the heavens were opened, and rain fell upon the earth forty days and forty nights. On that very same day, Noah and his sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and Noah's wife, and the three wives of his sons with them entered the ark. They and every beast according to its kind, and all the livestock according to their kinds, and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth according to its kind, and every bird according to its kind, every winged creature. They went into the ark with Noah, two and two of all flesh, in which there was the breath of life. And those that entered, male and female of all flesh, went in as God had commanded him, and the Lord shut him in. The flood continued forty days on the earth. The waters increased and bore up the ark, and it rose high above the earth. The waters prevailed and increased greatly on the earth, and the ark floated on the face of the waters. And the waters prevailed so mightily on the earth that all the high mountains under the whole heaven were covered. The waters prevailed above the mountains, covering them fifteen cubits deep. And all flesh died that moved on the earth, birds, livestock, beasts, all swarming creatures that swarm on the earth, and all mankind. Everything on the dry land, in whose nostrils was the breath of life, died. He blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens. They were blotted out from the earth. Only Noah was left, and those who were with him in the ark. And the waters prevailed on the earth 150 days. Thus, the first 150-day period ends. Everything God said about the seven days and the 40 days came to pass. The waters prevailed over the land like a conquering army, and only the men, women, and animals in the ark survived. The repetition about the waters builds dramatic tension. You can almost see the waters rising with every phrase. The repetition of every, again, shows the all-inclusive nature of the judgment and the unique privilege of those rescued, those saved. The use of the number 40 is interesting. It seems to fit a pattern of how God works. The children of Israel were condemned to 40 years of wandering in the wilderness for their lack of faith. Moses spent three 40-day periods of time on Mount Sinai as he was receiving the law. Christ, the true and better Israel and the true and better lawgiver, fasted and was tempted in the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights. At the very least, we see that the same God who judged the world at the flood also judged Israel in the wilderness and also gave the law to Moses. This same God then gave us Christ because none of us could keep the law that he had given. Well, now we turn, now we come to the turning point of the whole story and the theological center when God remembered. Now, God is not forgetful. To say that God remembered means that He determined to fulfill His promises based on His own character. Let's pick back up in chapter 8, verse 1. But God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark. And God made a wind blow over the earth, and the waters subsided. The fountains of the deep and the windows of the heavens were closed. The rain from the heavens was restrained, and the waters receded from the earth continually. At the end of 150 days, the waters abated. And in the seventh month, on the 17th day of the month, the ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat. 
And the waters continued to abate until the tenth month. In the tenth month, on the first day of the month, the tops of the mountains were seen. Here, the, lower, the repetition illustrates the gradually lowering water levels. With the water levels lowering, Noah then comes up with a creative way to look around, to conduct some reconnaissance. Verse 6, at the end of 40 days, Noah opened the window of the ark that he had made and sent forth a raven. It went to and fro until the waters were dried up from the earth. Then he sent forth a dove from him to see if the waters had subsided from the face of the ground. But the dove found no place to set her foot, and she returned to him to the ark, for the waters were still on the face of the whole earth. So he put out his hand and took her and brought her into the ark with him. He waited another seven days, and again he sent forth the dove out of the ark. And the dove came back to him in the evening, and behold, in her mouth was a freshly plucked olive leaf. So Noah knew that the waters had subsided from the earth. Then he waited another seven days and sent forth the dove, and she did not return to him anymore. Noah probably used a raven first because as a scavenger, it was the most likely to find food. The dove apparently is a much pickier eater. And if you've ever wondered why the dove and the olive branch are symbols of peace, now you know. Even though things are clearly improving, Noah, the man of faith, waits for instructions from God. Verse 13, in the 600th and first year, in the first month, the first day of the month, the waters were dried from off the earth. And Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked, and behold, the face of the ground was dry. In the second month, on the 27th day of the month, the earth had dried out. Then God said to Noah, Go out from the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives with you. Bring out with you every living thing that is with you of all flesh, birds and animals and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, that they may swarm on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. So Noah went out and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him, every beast, every creeping thing and every bird and everything that moves on the earth went out by families from the ark." Well, with this exit from the ark, the rescue mission has been accomplished. Salvation has been completed. All the rest of mankind and all the other land animals had been wiped out from the face of the earth by a cataclysmic flood, and only the occupants of the ark were saved from death and judgment. This is quite a rescue. You might even call it an epic rescue, an epic salvation. And at the center of this epic salvation is God remembering. You see, verse 1 of chapter 8 is at the center of a chiasm. A chiasm is a Hebrew literary device often seen in the Psalms. We often see chiasms in Pastor Daniel's sermons through the Psalms. It's a literary device where the first and the last points reflect each other, as do the second and the second to last, and so forth. The emphasis of a chiasm is always on the center. In this example, letter C. The flood story is a giant chiasm, and in the middle of this chiasm of warnings, sevens, forties, one fifties, and rising and lowering waters are the words, God remembered. It is a great comfort to God's people to know that God always remembers them. He remembers their affliction, He remembers that they are dust and prone to temptation, but most fundamentally, God remembering refers to His remembering and keeping His promises. Next, we see the promise. 
Five, the promise. God promised to make a covenant with Noah back in chapter 6, verse 18. Now He keeps that promise by making more promises. And God makes these promises in response to Noah's sacrifice. Chapter 8, verse 20 says this, Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. The first thing Noah does after being rescued is to offer sacrifices to God from some of the clean animals. This was no doubt, at least in part, a thank offering to God for salvation. But let's keep reading. Verse 21. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night, shall not cease. These verses are a summary of what theologians call the Noahic Covenant. It is the first explicit mention of the word covenant in the whole Bible. The word covenant means an agreement or a pact, especially like treaties between nations or in pagan mythology when a deity blesses a king. Covenants have promises, and sometimes they have commands and penalties for breaking those commands, and they often have a sign, something to remind the parties of those commitments. The sign of God's covenant with Abraham was circumcision. The sign of God's covenant with Israel through Moses was the Sabbath. The sign of the new covenant is Christ's blood, which we remember every time we observe the Lord's table. Other covenants promised eternal, an eternal throne and an eternal priesthood. All of these covenants either point to Christ or are fulfilled by Christ. The entire Old Testament is evidence that God is a covenant-making God, and the entire New Testament is evidence that God is a covenant-keeping God. Let's read the details of the Noahic covenant, beginning in chapter 9, verse 1. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon every living thing that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. And for your lifeblood I will require a reckoning. From every beast I will require it, and from man. From his fellow man I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. And you, be fruitful and multiply, increase greatly on the earth, and multiply in it. Then God said to Noah and to, and to his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you. And with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark, it is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you, that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations." 
I have set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth, and the bow is seen in the cloud, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. And God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. Notice all the parallels to the creation account. God gives the same blessings to Noah and the animals that he gave to Adam and the animals. It's as if Noah is a new Adam, a second Adam. But as we'll see, he is not the second Adam that we so desperately need. Also notice the emphasis on the value of human life. Humans are uniquely created in the image of God, and so their lives cannot be taken without just cause. The command for governments to exercise capital punishment shows the severity of the crime of murder, whether out of rage, oppression, greed, or because some lives are considered inconvenient or less valued by our society. Life is so precious that at that time, eating meat without the blood being first drained was forbidden. Blood symbolizes life, and it is also precious. So precious that the Bible says that sins cannot be forgiven without the shedding of blood. On a practical public policy level, this covenant reminds us that population is a blessing, not a curse. And while this passage rules out climate alarmism, it also does not excuse failure to wisely steward all God's gifts, including the environment. Scholars debate whether or not the rainbow here symbolizes a weapon being hung up. Even though the bow is the same uh, word for the weapon that shoots arrows, it's not clear from the context if that's what's meant here. It could just be describing the shape of a rainbow. Regardless, whenever you see a rainbow today, you can be reminded of God's grace. His common grace to all creation to preserve natural cycles and to never destroy the world with a watery judgment again. But it is also a warning of a fiery judgment. God makes covenants in this passage. He is making solemn promises. In the Bible, we see that God has made many promises. In Christ, those promises are ultimately fulfilled. As 2 Corinthians 1.20 says, For all the promises of God find their yes in Him. That was the promise, the Noahic covenant. Finally, we see the struggle. Number six, the struggle. If the story of Noah had stopped at the Noahic covenant, we might be tempted to think that Noah, rather than God, is the hero of this story. Or we might be tempted to think that Noah was sinless. Let's finish our passage today, beginning in chapter 9, verse 18. The sons of Noah who went forth from the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah, and from these the people of the whole earth were dispersed. Noah began to be a man of the soil, and he planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk, and lay uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Then Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both their shoulders, and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backward, and they did not see their father's nakedness." 
When Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his youngest son had done to him, he said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. He also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. And after the flood, Noah lived 350 years. All the days of Noah were 950 years and he died. Well, what happened here? While some commentators speculate that Ham violated Noah or Noah's wife sexually, or that he even committed an act of violence on Noah's body, the most likely interpretation is that Noah got drunk and his clothes fell off. Ham came in and saw Noah, and rather than try to preserve Noah's dignity, he ran to tell his brothers, drunkenness is a sin. Disrespect for parents is also sin. And since Adam and Eve first realized that they were naked, nakedness has been a symbol of shame. I don't think it's helpful to see this as a generational curse, and I don't think that's necessarily a biblical concept. What we do know is that God, the sovereign author of history, often foreshadows the sins of future generations in the actions of their ancestors. So remember the original audience of Genesis It was the children of Israel who were about to enter the promised land, the land of Canaan, and to execute God's wrath on the exceptionally wicked Canaanite people. The Canaanites were known for cultic prostitution and human sacrifice, including throwing infants into fires. And when their sin had reached its fullness, God used the children of Israel, who were descendants of Shem, as His instruments of judgment in the same way He used the floodwaters as His instruments of judgment in Noah's day. Now, some racists have cited this passage for their abhorrent views of racial superiority, but race and certainly skin color is not in view here. Some of the Canaanites would come to faith in the true God, like Rahab, who is in the line of Christ. And the children of Israel would eventually be taken into captivity for behaving worse than the Canaanites. And it doesn't really matter whether Noah is acting in sinful anger here when he pronounces uh, this curse and this blessing. If God can preach the gospel through Caiaphas the high priest in John 11, when he said that Jesus had to die to save the nation from destruction, then God can reveal important information to the children of Israel on the east bank of the Jordan River through the Uh, words of sinful Noah. The whole shameful episode uh, with Noah and Ham is a sobering reminder to me as a new father not to make it any more difficult than it needs to be uh, for my children to honor me. While there's no excuse for dishonoring parents, when parents behave sinfully or foolishly, it makes it a lot harder to obey that command to honor parents. Notice that Canaan is condemned to slavery. Sin brings slavery. Sin is slavery. We need to keep that in mind when we are tempted to think that rebellion against God is true freedom. It's not. Sin is slavery to self and to Satan. Ham thought sin was a joke. He thought sin was something to laugh at, not something to grieve over. He thought sin was funny. Do you think sin is funny? Do you joke about sin? Do you take sin lightly? Finally, notice how this passage ends in verse 29 with a pattern we saw in earlier genealogies, and he died. Noah died for the same reason that he sinned, because the curse and sinful human nature had not yet been fully defeated.
Noah experienced a powerful salvation, but it was not the ultimate salvation that we all need. Well, this has certainly been an epic story of salvation, but what relevance does this ancient story have for us today? How can we apply this passage to our own lives? To understand that, let's ask a series of questions about this story. What does it say about God? What does it say about us? What does it say about Christ? What does it say about the gospel? And how should we respond? I would highly recommend using these questions in your own personal Bible study. Asking these questions about any passage of Scripture should lead you to a profitable time in God's Word. And if you're looking for a new devotional plan, you could just try reading through your Bible while asking these questions. So for the rest of our time, let's ask each question about the story of Noah. What does the story of Noah say about God? It tells of His power. Psalm 29.10 says, The Lord sits enthroned over the flood. And when God revealed His power to, to Job, one of the things He asked him was, Who shut the sea with doors when it burst out from the womb, and prescribed limits for it, and set bars and doors, and said, Thus far shall you come and no farther, and here shall your proud waves be stayed? God has absolute power over nature and natural forces because He created them. It tells of His holiness. God is holy and He cannot tolerate corruption. He cannot tolerate sin. It tells of His wrath and judgment. God is angry at sin because He is a good God. His holy character requires a reckoning for sin. Judgment is certain because God's holiness is supreme. It tells of His trustworthiness. He remembered His covenant. He keeps His promises. When He promises that to judge sin, He will. When He promises to save those who repent of their sin and believe in Jesus, He will. He must. What does the story of Noah say about us? It says we have a sin nature. We, like Noah's generation, are corrupt and violent, and we too often live lives completely unmindful of God and independent of Him. We, like Noah, disgrace ourselves with sin. We, like Ham, disrespect our God-given authorities. We all desperately need to be saved from sin. Noah was saved from judgment through water. We need to be saved from coming judgment through fire. The Scripture is clear that this world will pass away and all will be judged. So let me ask you today, are you ready for judgment day? What does the story of Noah say about Christ? There was no salvation from the flood outside of the ark, just like there's no salvation from judgment day outside of Christ. Perhaps some people in Noah's generation were inspired by his stubborn commitment to his convictions and tried to be better people because of his example. If that's the case, it didn't do them any good if they weren't inside the ark. Friends, let me assure you today that Christ is a better ark. Christ is also a better Noah. Noah may have been relatively blameless and righteous, but Jesus is perfectly righteous and blameless. He is the sinless, spotless Lamb of God. Well, with all the references to creation in this passage, it's clear that Noah is a kind of second Adam. 
But this second Adam had his own fall. Noah was not the perfect Adam that we need. And as the book of Romans makes clear, Christ is the true and better second Adam. Where the first Adam brought death, Christ brings life to those who trust in Him. But why was it so important that Noah, who was of the godly line of Seth, be spared from the flood? And why was it so important that Shem would receive a blessing? This was to fulfill the promise that God had made to Eve, that one of her seed would one day crush the serpent's head. Christ is the end of the line of promise. Through Seth, through Noah, through Shem. Saving Noah allowed Christ to come into the world and save sinners like us. What does the story of Noah say about the gospel? It says we need a sacrifice. No doubt Noah's sacrifice was one of thanksgiving, but it was also clearly a sacrifice of atonement, a a sacrifice to satisfy the just wrath of God. The phrase, pleasing aroma, foreshadows the sacrifices for sin under the law of Moses. And the pleasing aroma is closely related to the Hebrew word for comfort or soothe, which is the meaning of Noah's name. Noah soothed God's wrath with a sacrifice of atonement for sin. It was only after the shedding of blood of clean animals that God's wrath was finally quenched and His covenant given. We need a better sacrifice of atonement. This is why Christ, the sinless one, suffered an unjust death on the cross to provide a perfect sacrifice of atonement. But remember how God loves to save His people through water? Noah from the flood, Moses from the Nile, and the children of Israel from the Red Sea. The Apostle Peter tells us that Noah's, uh, Noah's rescue is a picture of water baptism, which is itself a picture of the salvation that we have in Christ. So the next time we have a baptism here, let's remember Noah and God's salvation. But why was Noah saved? By faith, because of God's grace. Noah was not saved because of his works of righteousness. The book of Hebrews makes it clear that Noah had, quote, the righteousness that comes by faith. Noah, like anyone who is saved, was saved by faith. Noah had saving faith, and so the general pattern of his life was of righteous walking with God, even though he never lost his sin nature. And the only reason he had faith was because of the grace of God. Do you see how this works? God gives grace, grace leads to faith, that faith leads to obedience, and faith is ultimately what saves us. So please don't dare tell your children to be a good little boy or good little girl like Noah so that they will be saved from judgment. Noah was saved from judgment because he had faith. Noah obeyed because he had faith, and the only reason he had faith was because of the grace of God. Well, how should we respond to the story of Noah? What should we do or think differently because of this story? Well, non-Christian, you are like the people of Noah's generation. You go about your life living independently of God and breaking His commands. But a worse fate than drowning awaits you. You will endure an eternity of fire if you are judged for your sins. But you can be saved. Admit your sinfulness, seek to turn from it, and place your faith and trust in the finished work of Christ on the cross. Don't trust in anything else, church attendance, baptism, 
sacraments, or good deeds. Trust in Christ alone. If you have questions about that, please talk to one of us today or reach out to the church so that we can show you from the Bible how you can know that you have been saved from the flood of fiery judgment to come. Christian, are you discouraged? Are you weary? Are you tired of being out of step with your own generation? Are you tired of being different? Friend, if you are in Christ today, you have experienced a far greater rescue, a far greater salvation than Noah did. By God's grace, you have been saved, you are being saved, and you will be saved. The story of Noah is a story of salvation. Our God saves. He saves us from His own just wrath. He saves us through Christ and Christ alone. This is the salvation you need. Let's stand and pray. Lord, thank You for the great salvation that You have purchased for Your people through the blood of the perfect sacrifice, Jesus Christ, the righteous. If anyone today has not experienced this great salvation, may they come to Christ today through repentance and faith. May they have new life in this new year. Help us, your people, live lives of victory for your glory. When we stumble and fall, may we, each time, through faith, run to our ark of salvation, Jesus Christ. Lord, may your people have assurance. May our assurance rest not in ourselves, but in our trustworthy, promise-keeping God. Lord, thank you for your salvation. In Christ's name I pray, amen.